for like the last four years, I was going back regularly because I started playing with my other band called Number Two a, a bunch, and we recorded a record and actually put it out almost a year ago today, tomorrow. So um, I was going back to Portland regularly, um, seeing all my old friends, and they always come through here. Quasi was just here last night. What brought you out here? Well, uh, after the second number two record, I, I needed to like make money. <laughs> you know, I was, music just wasn't, I couldn't make a living. So you moved to the most expensive city in the, well, it turned out. So like what I do as a, for a living, um, to make money is I'm a video editor and I came out here to do that. And, um, it was great. Like it, I, I got a great job right away. And, you know, normally people, when they move to New York city, they have to pay their dues and it's brutal. And it was really easy for me. <laughs> I mean, eventually it got brutal. You know, it's a, it's a relentless place to live. But, um, it, uh, at first it was, it was so much fun and great because I had a killer job and like was suddenly making money, which I never did as a musician. <laughs> I mean, I moved out here right after college and did a few internships and that was a pretty, where'd you go to school? I, I'm from California. I went to school in Santa Cruz. Okay. That was a pretty miserable few years, but obviously if you've got a, a, a job lined up, you've got not only like... I didn't have it lined up. Oh, you didn't have it lined up. You moved no. out here. Okay. So you did do that. Yeah. I just came out and got it. And I mean, it, it ended up being connected with people from Portland, you know, like that's who I... They were my first freelance client and then boom, it was great. It was really awesome. Portland's becoming more and more like this. Obviously, I assume the case was fairly different in the you know like late eighties, early nineties. But this is a place where you know if you don't if you don't have like like a trust fund or or uh, or, or a nest egg, it's it, it can often be really difficult to pursue your dreams because you can't you can't not work here. Yeah, for sure. The cool thing about Portland when. When Heat Miser, especially like around this time of this record, was that um, it was really cheap. And um, at a certain point, both Elliot and I ended up unemployed and got unemployment. And Elliot got it for like a year. And it was great because it was, I mean, all you had to do was like phone in once a day and you could answer the questions like on a push button phone, you could answer the questions before they asked it. You know, you'd be like one, one, two, one, one. And then it was, you're through with your daily thing that you needed to check in with. And, and it was plenty of money to, to, to live, to live by when, you know, we were in our twenties and didn't have, mortgages or kids or anything like that so um and it and it's actually why we could play in bands because otherwise it, it was you know we worked all the time as soon as unemployment ran out and it eventually did run out 
You just have to work. I work in publishing, which means that I've been laid off twice. And I, you know, was freelancing, but I, but I did the unemployment thing. And it lasted, as it often does, it lasted a lot longer than, than I would have liked to. Like, I, I like, I actually like, like working, you know, and like, I feel, I, this is, this is my own issues, but I, I feel like bad when I'm not working. Yeah, of course. And I, and I feel like they go out of their way to make the process as miserable as possible. Who does? I, uh, unemployment office. Oh, right. <laughs> For sure. I live in Queens and there's just like, I remember for like one of the low points in my life was, you know, those, um, you know, those, uh, uh, school desks where it's a combination like desk chair, the desk kind of comes out of the chair. It's one piece. I, I just remember sitting in a unemployment office in I think Jamaica Queens with, with the neon lights, just sitting in this like tiny child's desk and just feeling like, this this is this, this is as bad. Hopefully, this is as bad as it gets for me. <laughs> Was it? Yeah, I'd say so. Well, from a job perspective, for sure. You know, like life is like that. I find I find in my own experiences that bad things tend to cluster. I don't know if you've experienced that too, but bad things sort of come pretty close together for me. Maybe it's a self-fulfilling thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> were you, um, so were you vi- editing video at the time? Which time? Uh, uh, so, uh, sorry, to get, to get back to uh, the, the, the sort of um, the salad days, the early of days. Heat of Heatmiser? No, 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 no. I, when we arrived in Portland in the summer of 91, um, I got a job at a copy shop that was... That, that ran, is a very early 90s Pacific Northwestern job. Yeah, except it, it wasn't like Kinko's. It was this place called TIS Business Services, which stood for Technical Imaging Services Business Services. And, and it was run by Christian fundamentalists. Which was really funny because I'd go there in my queer nation t-shirt and, um, and they didn't say anything. And all the bike messengers who were, you know, they were super punk rock, um, who were just hanging out in front of the, in front of the store delivering all these, you know, blueprints to architects around town and stuff that we would run. So it was pretty weird. <laughs> I have a lot of cartoonists on the show, and the ones who have been around for a while, the the ones who were got their start in the eighties, they all had Kinko's jobs. Uh huh. Because you you could run off your zines there. Yeah, Sam had Sam, who eventually joined He Miser, um, worked at Kinko's. I remember. So you you moved to so you and Elliot went to college together correct yeah uh and and the two of you moved to portland and the plan was to just become full-time musicians yeah that's yes that's why we decided it on the the summer before our our final year of school we were at a fourth of july party and we were like what are we gonna do and we just kind of looked at each other like why don't we be in a band and and then suddenly we were really excited and um so we did. 
We did it. It made the last year of school bearable because we had a plan. And and we also started developing songs for the band like that whole last year. You know, it's one thing to say let's be in a band and it's another thing to say let's let let's have the band be the thing. I mean, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing, you know? Like it was like we didn't know what it uh, we were just like we'll go to Portland and we'll play music. You know, you can do that there. He, he I mean, he was from Portland, so he would and he knew um he went to high school with a bunch of musicians and um, we um, it was really important for us to have a great drummer and he knew Tony and Tony was amazing. So it was, um, and Tony was like producing poison idea, you know, like it was really great. Like, so we, uh, we asked him if he would do it and he said yes. And then, we were like, okay, we, all we need to do is move to Portland and find a bass player. And then we're, which we did. You can't walk down the street without bumping into a bass player. No, it was hard. I mean, really? we were, well, we didn't, I'm, the, even though Elliot was from there, he didn't know like, uh, like people our age. He didn't know a lot of people our age, except for the people he went to high school with and they all left. So, um, so, um, we was just in going to see bands. There were a lot of bands in Portland, a lot. And we would just go see bands. And we went and saw this band called M99 that Brant played in. And it was, it was really good. They were very rock and roll. And, um, uh, we were going to try to steal him from M99. I think maybe Elliot talked to him and then there, they they parted ways, and that day, the the day we found out that Brant wasn't in an M ninety nine anymore, we got him in Heatmiser, and then bam, we were off. That would have been a much more difficult conversation when with him being, hey, leave this actually good band that you're in and come <laughs> join our band that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't have happened. It, but it just it worked out. So. We were off as soon as we had him. The Poison Idea connection is very interesting to me. Was there was there a connection at all to the hardcore scene at the time? Oh well, I mean, Heat Miser. The first two Heat Miser records are produced, co-produced by Slayer, the Slayer hippie Steve Hanford, who's the drummer in Poison Idea. So. Um, I mean, they were the only hardcore band I ever saw there. There was um, Napalm Death. I don't was there. Napalm Beach. Napalm Beach, not Napalm Death. I don't really remember what they were like. But there was just a, a vast variety of different things going on. There was like this sort of tribal band called Hitting Birth. And they would like sell out ballroom sized places um, and put on these really elaborate shows. And then there was like, like the leftover from you know, like the Paisley underground bands, like the Dharma bums and they would sell out huge places. And, um, and then there was like the, the beginning of all, like the alternative punk rock stuff like Cracker Bash 
I'm no, I'm forgetting band. But then also when we arrived, it was just right when Sub Pop started reaching over into Portland and they had signed Pond, um, which was a three piece. And it's not the same Pond that is like a, if you go like onto Spotify and try and find Pond, it's like, that's not the Portland band. But Sub Pop signed them and suddenly they were like a big deal. And we were actually rehearsing in the same house as them. And so we started meeting all of these same people and ended up going on tour with Pond years later. But, um, yeah, just started meeting people. That's how we found Frontier Records was through the Dharma Bums and, um, you know, you know, especially that time, um, you know, Seattle really bubbling up. There's a lot going yeah. on in Olympia at the same time. Was yeah. there a lot of bleed over? K Records was a big deal when we got there. And then, like, I friends of mine were super into K. And especially, and like obviously, the, you've got the Slater Kenny six degrees of separation. They were, they were later. So it was, um, actually, I don't know when the first Slater Kenny record, the very first one, came out, but, um, I mean, by the time Janet joined, it was much later. So, um, the, uh, I don't, I remember, I think we played Olympia. I don't remember. Here's the thing. I, I've forgotten almost all of this stuff. In fact, Tony sends me these recordings. He started sending me mixes and I was like, where did this come from? I, I didn't remember it at all. <laughs> I don't know how much of this is COVID. I've never had a great memory, but I, I don't remember last week. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, like I, when, when I ask you, when I ask you questions about stuff from, you know, 30 plus years ago, I, I, I I'm not expecting the, uh, that, that fine, a level of detail. There was just a, I mean, there, it was like a big, it felt huge to me when we, when we landed in Portland, there was like, the rocket and snipe hunt and um, Willamette week and all these publications that would write about music. Some were totally dedicated to just Pacific Northwest music and they all were really opinionated. And, um, and there was just pages and pages of stuff about hundreds of bands. You know, there were so many bands and you could play. And then there would be like, places popping up to play all around and you could go in, you know, like some new place would come up and we'd just go play there. They'd call us and be like, yeah, we'll go play. And people would come. It was amazing. It's a, it, when I went back to do number two and it's, you know, 30 years later, it was so completely different and, way harder <laughs> you were established at least you know you've yeah. been through the industry and yeah i mean, had records out and everything yeah and friends and all that stuff but it was it's just it's not the same there was something really special about the pacific northwest and it and about the fact that so many people would just come out and go see music and it was this like uh, it was so culturally relevant and people were really dedicated to it and very tribal about it, but they belong, you know, you had a sense of belonging for sure. It was great. I think with something like that, you know, when you're talking about 
the most recent record and, and getting back into it, it's hard to untangle what is what the obviously there have been a lot of fundamental changes to, to Portland and what is just that like you know that people who are familiar with this stuff you know they they're not the same you know 20 21 year year olds early sure. on and you know a lot of them have kids they're not coming out to shows like they used to right i i think our relationship to music is changed you know like the because the because of the formats have changed and the, um, you know, there's, there's no gatekeeper anymore. You know, it's like kind of this massive level playing field and you're it's, but it's your job to, um, carve out your audience and find people and connect. And, uh, you, you know, you have to learn how to do that. And it's easier to learn how to do that when you're really young <laughs> And aren't used to doing it in a certain way, but, um, it's still, it's still people. There's still so many people in Portland who go see music. So it's still great. Part of the question about a spillover or however I phrase it before from Seattle is from the standpoint of, you know, and this is all my, what I understand, you know, from years and years later, um, I wasn't in, I wasn't in the scene. I wasn't even super conscious about, music at the time, but I get the sense that once a Nirvana comes along, the way that major label record companies and uh, radio was set up at the time, that they were just hoovering up like anybody who was tangentially connected to that band or that scene. Definitely. And so there was a lot of competition and, and a lot of skepticism about any band that suddenly appeared that sounded like that, which is what we did. You know, like we didn't, we didn't know, like we moved there right before Nirvana or Nevermind came out. That came out the summer of 91. So it, you know, it was suddenly like, oh my God, (laughs) this is, there's like a groundswell and, and that has benefits and also, deficits you know like the the it was competitive you're um but when i look back at it it's it's also like you know we're just that's just kind of the nature of being of, of a bunch of artists in a community who like are really intense about their art and want to be good at it and so you see people, you get blown away and then you're like, you got to level up and you know, that's what it ends up being like. That's what it felt like is, you, you know, you had to level up really as fast as you could. Being in a band with two songwriters, was there a little friendly competition between the two of you? Totally. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for sure. There was, there was, we were really excited to be in a band. And so there was, that wasn't really like the competition in terms of songwriting wasn't really the focus of our anxiety, you know, like it was way more about like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get shows? How are we going to afford a van? How are we going to be able to, 
rehearse enough? You know, like, is everybody committed to this? Is, you know, are we going to, how are we going to find a record label? How are we, um, you know, how are we going to get the next show with that's, that's decent, that isn't, you know, playing the nobody or whatever. There was so much of that stuff going on, but then in the band, it was just fun, especially in the beginning, you know, it was really fun. Given the later stuff and, you know, given what Elliot sounded like solo, obviously a lot of like spillover there from, uh, as far as the songs go, it, it sounds like the two of you were kind of going in different directions musically toward the end. Well, I mean, he got on his path and was like, you know, just went for it. And it was, it was so totally clear to everybody that that was like creatively the right way to go. But like, I didn't want my band to break up. And so I wasn't, and I, I like being, I liked being in a rock band. I like drums, you know? So it, um, there wasn't, we, we were also loved bands that changed dramatically from record to record, you know, like that's what the Beatles did. That's what Elvis Costello did. That's what David Bowie did. That's, you know, REM did that. So we, Love that, and we embraced the change, like fully. So, uh, you know, once Elliot started getting on a roll and um, found an audience that uh, connected with his quieter music, the band quieted down. You know, like it just—it was there was no way to. I mean, that was a natural thing to happen. It's hard to do a, like a punk song and then a, like well, to go back and I, forth. I mean, I, I will say there's unreleased stuff from Mike City Sons or it's Elliot's songs that are like full on some of the faster stuff we've ever done. And it, and so it's, it's not like he gave that up or just, you know, wanted to shrink the, the palette of music that he was making, he just wanted it to be better. And it, uh, the way that it got good for him was when he was by himself. So it was, that was hard to deal with because I didn't know if the, the reason why Heatmiser didn't connect as well as Elliot Smith didn't connected was my fault because they're Elliot Smith songs in heat miser. I don't, you know, like it's the same songwriter, but it, it was a weird time. Like that was a, that was not easy to deal with just because it would attack my confidence and then I couldn't be creative. That's just, that's where like the, at, at least the conflict inside me in the band was. Something that I've had to work on is the very obvious realization that if you surround yourself, I like to surround myself with talented people, people who are really good at what they do, 
And then invariably those people are going to, you know, there's just a lot of like rocket ships sometimes. And it's, I'm trying really hard not to begrudge people who I really like for their successes, but you know, it it can be hard. Yeah, it can be. I, I just, um, I didn't want it to break up my band, you know, like that's the thing is like, I didn't, those records that Elliot made were so fucking good that it was like, I mean, why I, I couldn't, I didn't, um, I didn't feel like I needed to be bummed about it. You know, <laughs> like it, it didn't, the fact that his solo records were good didn't bum me out. What, what would bum me out is if, like he got, uh, he was doing interviews one after another and he got in a bad mood, started talking shit about our band. And then it's like, you're talking shit about yourself. Is that a hypothetical or is that something that actually happened at the time? Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, he would, it's hard for me to remember specific stuff, but I, the, I remember standing in a record store and reading a, an interview with him where, you know, he was bemoaning essentially loud rock music. And it, it's like, well, then don't write it. <laughs> it's like, I, that's, that's fine. I don't, you know, I'm not the one, I wasn't the one telling him he had to do that. That. So it was, it was a weird, it was weird that, but it was also, I'm reading it in a, you know, a publication. It wasn't a conversation with him when I, when we were together and we would talk about this stuff, he never said that shit. You know, he never gave any indication that he wanted he might sort of break up. And, and he, it was more that he, he just wanted it to be good. And so, like, how are we going to do that? And he was very opinionated about that, which was, which was the right thing to be opinionated about so it's not that it wasn't good obviously it's not that it wasn't good but he wanted to be something different yeah there was there was a lot of there were a lot of there was a lot of creative people in a band and but then there was also like it had more machinery to it than than his solo stuff Eventually, his solo stuff had a ton of, like, music industry machinery in place. What do you mean by machinery? Like a, a manager, a publisher, a, you know, a major label, booking agent, um, people who have a vested interest in his success as a solo artist. And, you know, like Heatmiser's competition. That stuff became very tense. You know, like the, the fact that there were simultaneous record labels and simultaneous tours, you know, that's just where like, well, what are we going to do? When we were making Mike City Sons, I spent months just by myself in our studio. (laughs) It was weird. This all happened pretty soon after the Virgin thing. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we're we're now start talking about stuff that's like happened far after the music of Heatmiser 
the thing that's coming out. So it's, it's like a, it's a, a really, it was a big change between the start of the band and the end of the band. And at the start of the band, what to me is interesting about these recordings is that we were having fun and it comes across. It came, I was really surprised when I heard it. I was like, Oh, this is, this is awesome. As far as like, as your, your memories clouded it. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, it was, it was a hard breakup for me because it, it went on for a long time and it was unclear what was really going to happen. And then it ended and, um, the band was over. Elliot called me up, said, you know, I'm going to do this DreamWorks thing and they need to, the only way I can sign to DreamWorks is if we end the contract with Virgin. So I want to say that he was broken up and I just said, okay. I mean, we didn't have any plans to be doing anything. Then of course we started recording together right after that. And he helped me with all the demos for the number two record. And I made his record covers. I made either or and XO. And so we continued to work together, but it was just, um, I forgot the question I was answering. What does it mean for it to take a long time for a band to break up? We just didn't talk about it, <laughs> you know? So like it's like a, a relationship breaking. Yeah. Up. Oh, it's exactly like that, it, but it's more complicated because there's more people. And and I, I just can't say this enough. There, it never was like, you know, Elliot never said to me, this is the last thing I'm doing. And then it's over with the band. Yeah. Ever, never said anything like that. It was just kind of, he might've said that to other people, but he didn't say it to me. And, uh, so you know, like it had gotten weird. Um, but we made Mike city sons and we were on a major label. We could make another record, get more money, could do that. You know, it, it, we weren't on a deadline, but it, uh, it just didn't work out that way. Is this the first time that you've reengaged with the yeah. early stuff? Oh yeah. For in, in like decades, because when it did end, I was like, okay, I'm leaving this behind. And we just dropped it. And um, I threw myself into putting together another band and trying to write, trying to make a record that was good, you know? And that's what I concentrated on until, like, I just couldn't do that anymore. And then I moved to New York you know, and then, and then I wasn't a musician once I was here. I was an editor and I just, and that was, and I was successful at that, which felt really good after beating my head against the brick wall of the music industry, you know, like it, that was hard. And so I just didn't ever listen to Eat Miser. Are you able, when you look back and reflect on it, are you able to see the successes? You know, when I look back, I remember how it felt. 
And I don't remember, like, I don't remember any facts. <laughs> well, it's an opinion question because, you know, you, the way you I, framed it is I, I didn't, I wasn't successful as a musician. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say that because, uh, I made five records and that's a hard thing to do, you know, like, thank you. But, um, uh, and it, it is true that there are people out there who continue to listen to them. And I, I'm very thankful for that. Um, and I'm thankful I got to be in heat miser. It was a, those guys are fucking cool. All of them. And I'm still friends with all of them, but, um, you know, it ended and it, it was a heartbreak, you know, like it, it's like getting divorced because it's your, your property is all tied up with each other. You know, your livelihood, everything, all that had to get unraveled. And then you start all over again and just like, fuck, I have to start all over again. And I was so young that I didn't know how to do it except by, you know, charging ahead. You rebounded really quickly, it sounds like. So when did Mike City Sons come out? Like 96 or something? And then number two, the first record came out in 99. Okay. So it took a while for us to pull it together. You know, you started playing and obviously it takes a while to, to make that first set of songs. Going back and hearing it, do I, could I appreciate it now? Um, yes, I can definitely appreciate it. I can also hear, um, it's really obvious to me, like, um, especially these recordings that are coming out now, what's what immediately struck me is that I knew they were only done in the first or second take because we didn't have any money and we were recording like 10 songs at a time. You know, I think we might've had two days in the studio. So that's how we sounded. There's nothing, there's nothing. There's no studio magic. Nah, you know, like that's it. <laughs> and as when we came to our, our first record, Dead Air, we ended up re-recording everything, which was probably a big mistake <laughs> because it just, it kind of drove out the joy in some of it. I, I, I like our first record, especially like Blackout. And um, that's one, probably one of the, my favorite songs of Heat Miser. I, I love that song. And it, that came after these uh after this set of recordings, but, um, I, I, I do wish that we just use some of this stuff instead because there's like a lightness to it. There's a, um, an effortlessness to it that, um, feels good. I'm going to be a little on the nose about it, but it's punk rock, right? It is. I mean, that's, but it's also, well, it's music, like, cause music is chemistry captured in a moment, you know? And it's, um, but at the time, I, I don't know why we redid it. Probably because we were all really into recording and we thought we could make it better. You know, we wanted to spend money on it. Like, oh, we need to spend money on this to make sure it sounds even better. 
we were very ambitious in the studio. I have to imagine that Sam joining the band, that's got to be a nice little little jolt to the system. It was, uh, it was a, yes, it was, um, it didn't feel like a jolt. It felt like, um, like things like chilled out because it, by the time we parted ways with Brant, there was a lot of tension in the band and that it just ended when well, it didn't fully end because it just got built up <laughs> sure. with uh, between, between different, especially between Tony and Elliot. It got really, it reset. Yeah. Um, but Sam, Sam came in and was like, one, I'm, I'm not, I'm just helping out. You know, he's, he didn't, he never, he never said he was our bass player, but we like, we both Elliot and I knew that we weren't going to ever find anyone better than him. And even though we tried, we wasn't going to work without him. And he playing with Sam was, he has like, he can access his id, you know, like it's intense, but he's not, he doesn't, that intensity isn't like in the van when you're with him, (laughs) you know, it's like, he's not Henry Rollins. He's a sweetheart and, and a, and a, fundamentally decent person um and he it was just like immediately a brotherhood what were those tensions is it just like regular dudes in their 20s band stuff uh it was fights over how stuff sounded about how things um should be recorded that uh, you know it wasn't like you know elliot wasn't saying that tony was an asshole you know, like a bad person. He was, he would get really uptight about the way the symbols sounded or, you know, in a recording or he would also get, uh, after he'd, he'd made his second solo record, he just, he wasn't really interested in really a, a someone who could play so precise, which is weird because He's really precise. Elliot was exceptionally precise. So it was just like this. I want you to be precise, but not in that way, (laughs) which is a ridiculous thing to say to somebody because they're just like, I'm just being who I am. And, and I'll add that Elliot came to understand that he was unfair Later on, long after we broke up, last time I saw him, he admitted that he'd been unfair to Tony. And I think this is really important. You mentioned that Sam was a pleasant person to have in the van because there's no scenario in which you put a bunch of dudes in their 20s in a band for extended period of time and there isn't some tension bubbling up. Oh, yeah, of course. You're living in very close quarters and... But, I mean, we didn't tour that much. So the tension was really about how the records were going to sound. I mean, not really. All of us were very much wanted to make beautiful records. Was there a honeymoon period at all with Virgin? It took a really long time to... um, took a really long time for the deal to get worked out. 
because from the beginning of their interest to the time we signed, Elliot had become a successful solo artist. Yeah. And also, we'd never signed our deal with Frontier. So the day we signed to, to Virgin was also the day we signed our Frontier contract. And it ended up being, we, I mean, we just signed two really bad deals, you know? So we now, we would never do something like that, like never sign away the rights to our master recordings or anything like that. But it's a did. thing that people understand now. I mean, we kind of understood it, but the thing is, is it's like, you know, the band was held together by momentum. And it's, if we were going to slow down, that's when it would fall apart. And so it was just kind of like charge ahead. Let's just keep doing it. You asked if there was a honeymoon period. There, there wasn't, but there was a smooth period. And I remember it was late in recording Mike City Sons where I, where it really felt like it smoothed out because, um, Elliot and I had ton of overdubs that we had to get done in this, like, like a two week period. And it was just us in the studio and we were working and it, it was amazing. It was great. We, we got a ton done and there was no tension and we just worked really hard together. It's great. We were excited about what we were making and, um, we were, it was getting close to being done and we were going to go mix it and it was going to be awesome. And so there was a period, there were periods where it felt good. I asked partially because some of the clips, some of the vi- the video clips that, that are floating around places like YouTube have a little like MTV two logo in the corner. So there was, there was a push. You mean like, a? You mean like the video for Plain Clothes Man or something? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Virgin kicked it down to Caroline as soon as we finished the record because they they could see that we kind of were like, here's the record. We're, we need to, like, take a break. <laughs> Instead of, like, get on tour and go, we, like, they, we did go on tour, but... By then, Tony didn't wasn't playing. You did the worst possible thing for your momentum. Yes. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of um, energy put behind that record, but the band was just kind of like, I had to let go of this. Um, it was difficult to make, and... Nobody wanted to stay in that atmosphere. You know, again, we were discussing Sam coming in, and, and I partially asked because it, it was a case of a member leaving and a new element coming in. What, was there ever any potential that there could be a heat miser without Elliot? I mean, I didn't consider that. I did, what would be the point? I mean, it would just be start a band with Sam. It's a group of guys you've been playing together and you, and you like each other and you've been producing good music. Yeah. I mean, none of us really would have thought that. I, I mean, they wouldn't have, if I quit, they wouldn't have kept going as Heatmiser. Elliot, I mean, Elliot was already a solo guy, so he wouldn't have done it. But, um, no. Did number two feel like a, just a complete, did you feel like you were starting from zero? Yeah. 
totally. I mean, I I gave my I I demoed songs and sent them to Virgin because they had an option to pick up, and they were like, "Well, we've got the Spice Girls now, and that's really the focus of the of the label." That's literally what they said, our A and R guy, and I was like, "Okay," and um. And so I was free and I actually did feel free. Like I felt, okay, it it can be anything now. Hmm. And I just went back to work, started hanging Christmas lights. Um, eventually found a job at a design agency, which is where I learned to edit. But, um, that it, it, it was, fortunate that I got dropped from Virgin. And then I hooked up with Donna Dresch's Chainsaw label, which is the one of the coolest punk rock labels in the Pacific Northwest, as far as I was concerned, because it was full of queer people. And um, that, that first number two record, um, if we'd had a booking agent, like we might've, um, been able to ride that record longer but it you know it didn't happen (laughs) at that point in time was there ever a consideration that you just weren't going to do music after the end of heat miser no no considerate not at all it was a hundred percent like start a new band were you discouraged though i was bummed i had to start all over again for sure i mean it but i I also had confidence that it, that I could make something that sounded good. And, um, I, I wanted to do it. I, I've wanted to play in a band since I was so young. You know, I started guitar playing at eight years old, used to carry records around before then. Like I played with, seven inch records. I have them in my baby pictures and it's, um, it's just been the thing that I love to do the most. And there was no question that I was going to do that, but it was only after like I was in my early thirties and just had to confront the fact that I, I can't make a living doing this. It's not working. And that a, a lot of that had to do with just, we didn't have a booking agent. I've talked to a number of people who at various points, a number of musicians who at various points just just stop making music. Now, obviously, I'm talking to them, so in every case, they started doing it again. But like for me, the only thing that I've ever really wanted to do for a living is, is be a writer. And I've, I've been able to do that, not not necessarily on the terms that I hope for, but like I consider myself very lucky that for you know, close to 20 years at this point that I've been able to survive in New York city and, and survive on being a writer. What surprises me are these people. And, and I don't know where you land on this, but are these people that like, it's their passion. It's the only thing they ever wanted to do. It's the one thing or the main thing that really brings them joy in life. And they're able to just stop. And I don't know how people just stop. Well, I don't know how other people stop, but when I stopped, it was a big relief. 
because um, I thought, you know, I love music. I love it, but I don't love this. I don't love the way this feels on a day-to-day basis. And there are other things that I want to learn how to do. And I was also very I was single and lonely, you know, like all of my time. I would go to work, come home, work on songs, go to practice. We'd have gigs on the weekend. You know, like there was no, there's nothing else happening. And stopping, I, I also thought maybe I'll make a record when it's kicking and screaming inside me and needs to come out, you know, like that's what I'll do. But I also have always loved the intersection of music and visuals. And I really wanted to develop the visual, my, my interests in, in how in making stuff that you could look at. And I, um, so I had to, I was lucky enough to get a job at a, at this design agency that was transitioning into broadcast design. And so they needed somebody who could combine sounds and visuals. And I just learned how to do it, became their editor. And it, um, it felt really good. It, 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 um, it, it felt good because, um, I, I was a natural at it and, uh, People were excited when they saw it, which was not what was happening when we would go play shows on the weekend after I'd been in bands in Portland for 10 years. You know, like it was kind of like, not. it was hard to get people to come to see you play when you've been playing all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, you're asking like, how do you just stop? It was more like, well, to use that the horrible tech bro term, it was more of a pivot, you know, like it, it, it was just like, let's do some, it, it was more like, I'm going to reorient the ship. I'm going to redirect my creative juices. And it, it fully required music to be part of it. Hmm. Um, but it, I just wasn't writing song. The way you described it, Kick, kick when it when it's kicking and screaming it's inside of you sounds like you were always anticipating returning at some point. yes well i didn't know and i was it was a relief to just kind of um it was a relief to not um struggle against against something that felt impossible you know, like I making enough money in a band to pay everybody in the band and to have to pay my expenses was just I, I couldn't make it happen. And every single the, the you know, we did the first number two record and then Chainsaw was like, you need a bigger label. You shouldn't put your second record out with us. And then I couldn't find any label to do it. And it took a really long time before Alex Steiniger in, in, in Portland agreed to do it. And by the, by the time that record came out, I was just finished. Like, you know, like I, it was, I was like, this is, 
if I don't get some help, if this doesn't generate some interest and some help, then I can't, I can't do it anymore. And it, it, I didn't get any help. (laughs) So it was a relief to, um, develop other, other interests and to be excited about making stuff and also to feel like a success at something. And so it was great. And there was a period around 2012 where I took a break from it and was like, I'm going to teach myself logic. You took a break from editing? Yeah. So I'd been doing it, you know, hardcore for seven years or whatever. How long? 2005 to yeah, seven years. And there was a, a chance for me to take a break. I'd earned enough money. I could spend a few months just concentrating on stuff. And so I did that and I got, I just did everything that I could think of. And then I felt like I'd done it and emptied myself. And I saw like, okay, to take this to the next stage, is going to take a lot of my time and I got to, I got to go back to work. So I went back to work instead. And then it would just keep coming back. Like I, I came to realize doing advertising and putting songs and ads was starting to make me cynical about songs. And that, and that alarmed me, you know, I didn't want, this thing that I loved to be destroyed. And so I consciously was like, okay, I'm going to stop at making ads and I'm going to learn how to play guitar again. And I'm going to play every day and we're going to write. And we're gonna and it helped that like Paul and Gilly were like super into it. The, the, the other thing that had happened is that I got the first two number two records reissued on vinyl and they sold out like, oh, my God, they did. Well, they did better on a reissue 15 years later than when they first came out. So um, it felt like I could I could I could make a record. I could play music. It doesn't have to be the way that I make a living. So I, that can take that that pressure can be taken off. And so now, like, what do you want to make? What, what matters? And it, it was a beautiful experience being able to do that. It was back to feeling joyful about um, making music and feeling the power of rock music and feeling like the propulsion of it and levitating because of it, feeling goosebumps, you know? It's, it was great. And that wasn't there when I decided to stop, you know, in 2002 to 2003, that, that visceral joy just was, wasn't there. So stopping wasn't hard. <laughs> so you had a record come out last year. You, you've got this, um, we're ostensibly talking about this, uh, heat miser reissue as we're recording this. What is your relationship with music? Oh, I'm I'm working on new stuff, you know, and and open to possibilities 
it would it would be fun to um it'd be fun to make something really killer like the best thing that i've ever made i would like to do that you know i i would like to get better and and make something that connects with people more than i have been able to in the past that there's something so viscerally thrilling about that that it it like makes life worth living you know i i would love to make another record and so i'm working on it but it takes me a long time 